Welcome to the initial, the first ever Bartender Atlas podcast. On this podcast, I, Josh Lindley, co-founder of Bartender Atlas, will act as a host and I'll talk with some well-known and maybe some not-so-well-known bartenders that have taken on projects outside of the barroom. I want to thank my best friend Matt Wu for donating the theme music. If you like it, you can find him playing in a band called Mistake Not. I'm sure they're on social media somewhere. For this, the first episode of the Bartender Atlas podcast, we asked Samuel Jimenez of the Bay Area in California to share his past, his passions with us. We talk about where he grew up, what he did in his pre-bar life, and we talk about Tiki. So, take a listen to Sam Jimenez on the first Bartender Atlas podcast. All right, so Sam... I'm going to start this off uh, with pretty basic, going way, way back question. Where did you grow up? Ah, um, it's funny because everybody, I think anybody that interacts with me uh, thinks I'm mostly from L.A. just because of my L.A. sports fan um, loyalties. But I was actually born in Southern California. Uh, I was born in Long Beach, raised in, like, not really raised, but spent the first couple years of my life in Long Beach, Carson area. Um, before my family, we moved around a ton, uh, when I was in my younger years, all over California, Southern and Northern. <clears throat> um, but eventually settled in Hayward, California, which is about 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes south of Oakland, uh, depending on where in Oakland you're at. Um, so the East Bay side of, uh, San Francisco Bay Area in a city called Hayward, um, basically moved there when I was seven and raised there pretty much the rest of my life. What was the reason you guys moved around so much? Uh, you know, I like to tell people all the time, um, it's, uh, there's like two types of kids or families that move around a lot. It's yeah. Like uh, military kids and then broke families. Right. So it's just, uh, my, both of my parents, uh, both of my parents are immigrants. So throughout the first few years of my life, uh, you know, and they were pretty young parents as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we kind of moved around. Luckily, uh, my mom has a lot of family in California, so we spent a lot of time kind of um, hopping between different families' houses, living with different cousins and different uncles and aunts, and, um, until my parents eventually bought a home in Hayward. Right on. And then, so when you got to Hayward, did you? What sort of school did you go to? Did you like school? Um, I've always loved learning. Yeah. I didn't know it's like translated to, you know, loving school, but I've always loved to learn mm-hmm. uh, and to seek knowledge out. Um, but I was also kind of a rebellious kid um, just because of, you know, the parts of it or because of, I think, the environment that uh, we grew up in. What sort of stuff were you getting involved involved in outside of family and school stuff? Obviously, your family seems pretty tight. I know a lot on social media you post about you and your brother hassling each other all the time and 
talking about moving around a bunch, I feel like that builds a really tight family. Uh, and then you said that you, yeah, sure. and you said that you enjoyed learning and you were pretty into school, at least up to a point. What sort of stuff were you getting into? Like what were your extracurriculars, whether they were, uh, properly sanctioned or not? <laughs> what were you into? I mean, you don't uh, got to incriminate yourself or anything, but, you know. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Of course not. That's, that's her uh, off-the-record conversation. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> growing up, you know, I had a really unique, I feel like I had a really unique childhood looking back on it. I mean, first off, something I always talk about when people, like, ask me about where I'm from, um, you know, Hayward, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, socio- as well as like uh, ethno-racial um, profiles is has been one of the top five uh, diverse cities in the U.S. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up with just so many different cultural influences. Uh, like I said, both my parents are immigrants. My mom's from Samoa. My, my dad's from Mexico. So in terms of like extracurricular activity, like by having a huge family first up. In terms of siblings, it's just my brother and I, but like cousins, there's... 583 of us. Only 583. Uh, real thing. <laughs> my first cousins, really, like my first cousins, my mom's, my mom's one of nine, my dad's one of seven. So first cousins, because there's definitely like 50, 60, 70, I don't know yeah. what the count is. But then uh, extended family, it's, it's pretty large, especially in California. A lot of my Samoan families in California. So um, it was always very much family, uh, very family oriented. Um, as a kid, um, but once, you know, both my parents worked a lot. They, uh, my dad worked two, three jobs at a time. Um, so my mom still worked full time, but she was, you know, home with us, uh, as much as possible. But, you know, my brother and I, from a pretty young age, um, to some degree kind of had a lot of freedom. And my brother was into music at a very young age and he's a talented musician. Mm-hmm. constantly on tour um, so music was a part of uh, our life at a very young age and that's what I think about when I think about my childhood being very unique as um, I grew up the musical influence in my life drove so much of what I got into because I mean naturally because of where we grew up which is uh, you know, kind of lower socioeconomic status in you know, predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods in California mm-hmm. um you know, hip hop culture drives um, so much of, uh, of you know our surroundings. Mm-hmm. So from a very young age, you know, like hip hop was a huge influence. Um, my family, a lot of my family, grew up listening to reggae. So you know, roots reggae, island reggae, uh, you know, like real ska. Like that was a huge musical influence at a young age. Um, but then as we started to get older, you know, the East Bay has always been a hub of like punk rock, hardcore music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of my friends, like I, I skated as a kid. Uh, so a lot of my friends were kind of into that scene. So at a pretty young age, I'd say like 13, 14, um, I started really to get into that scene, played music at a young age, um, and I played in some bands throughout high school. Uh, was constantly going to one of like the legendary music venues in the Bay Area called 924 Gilman, mm-hmm. which is where like, you know, bands like Operation Ivy, um, and AFI and uh, ranted in a lot of like those seminal 
Yeah, Gilman Street is like one of the most legendary venues on the planet. For sure. You know? Especially in like that punk rock, uh, like punk rock genre. Uh, everyone from, so you know, Los Crudos to Green Day. Like, yeah. Um, so, like it's weird because when I was also an athlete, I also mm-hmm. played sports. Like I, I played soccer from a very young age. Uh, my dad, that was like the first sport my dad put us in. My brother played sports as well, but he eventually, like as we got older, he kind of went more into music. I went into sports. Yeah. Um, throughout high school, uh, basketball became you know, really like my first love. I grew up when we moved into the house in Hayward. I grew up um, my backyard, was basically a park, like a park. It had the the park has like a steel chain nets on the basketball court. Yeah. So like that was huge. Um, personal influence of mine because basically I would be laying in bed as as early as like eight nine years old. I was saying like like all the OGs would be at the basketball courts playing beyond my house. Um, so I would constantly hear like the, the sound of the nets as I'm laying in bed as a kid. So when I got old enough around like you know, 12, 13, a lot of my older homies were like, "Yeah, man, just come out and play." I used to sneak out of the house. Um, you know. 10 o'clock at night because they would be out there playing until like 1 a.m. Uh, and I used to sneak out of the house. My dad eventually like caught me sneaking out of the house but he would just come to the park and he would see like I was doing positive things. I was going to say a lot of 12, 13 year olds when they sneak out of the house they're doing something a lot more suspicious than playing basketball. For sure. That's crazy. Like I, it's like, it's, uh, I didn't do I was such like a pure kid even at that age. Pure in some ways. Yeah. I, I didn't like do drugs. I didn't I didn't drink. Um, I didn't drink until I was 21. Mm-hmm. So that's all throughout my life because I think athletics had a lot to do with that. I just wanted to be good at sports. So like I said, I mean, I would sneak out of the house and my dad would come find me and I would be playing basketball. With, I was always like the youngest. Um, and I'm like, he wouldn't even get mad at it. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, like, the, the, like these guys are playing rough. They're all like, I was maybe like 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, you know, playing with like 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Um, and it was like, that was, there was very much a brotherhood that I think my dad could say. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would come out there sometimes and just watch. And he would always tell me uh, when I would get into my high school games, like, play like you're out in the park. Because like, when you're out in the park, you know, it's kind of, you play with reckless abandon, you're more aggressive. But, and when you get into an organized setting, it's a little bit different. But, I don't know, does that answer the question? I feel like I went off on a tangent. No, um, man. You, so, touch, yeah. you touched yeah. on a lot of cool yeah. stuff. Uh, the idea yeah. of, like... Sports. Yeah. And even the idea of just, uh, you know, neighborhood kids becoming sort of a, like, de facto family. For sure. And that's the thing, is, like, because, of, again, like, I grew up in such a diverse neighborhood, like, my core best friend groups, like, growing up, which a lot of them, like, I still hang out with, still, you know, it's still very much family. Um... Those are still my best friends to this day, but like obviously I'm I'm Samoan and Mexican. You know, some of my best friends are like Pakistani, Vietnamese, uh, you know, Salvadorian, Mexican, mm-hmm. black, white. You know, it's, it's such like a, a, a mixture of different ethnicities, different cultural upbringings. Uh, but it was brought together like everybody in my neighborhood. Basically, you either skated or you played basketball or you played music. Right. Um, and a lot of like a lot of us did did it all. Which I look around now and I'm like, it's that's 
but that was a very unique upbringing because I was exposed to so many different um, like ethnicities and cultures in that way, but mm-hmm. also so many like subcultures like the skate culture, like the punk rock culture, like hip hop culture. I was exposed to so much of that that I think a lot of people only get like singular experiences like that. Yeah. Um, growing up. So yeah, it was kind of a, a little bit of a street rat, but I was, uh, but it was a. Uh, That's great. So, so okay. So you're playing basketball. You get adjusted in Hayward. You have to go away to private school, which I'm not going to go too deep in that. But like, even even in even in high school though, and you were sort of put into this other area of your life. Did you continue with a lot of the stuff that you had learned previously? Like, were you still playing basketball? Were you still skating? Even though, you know, you were sort of separate separated from your family for a minute. Right on the academic side, mm-hmm. um, mostly because uh, high school is where I learned how to code switch. Yeah, right. Because I'd never been exposed. Everybody around me you know, was pretty much from the same circumstances. Um, a lot of immigrant families, a lot of low-income families. Growing up, before I got to high school, once I got to high school, I was going to I was going to school with like kids whose parents were millionaires. I'd never really been exposed to that Whoa. before. Yeah. That's an important okay. lesson to learn, for sure. Definitely figures into what I'm getting into next. Did you do any post secondary after high school, or you just go straight into working? You know, I, uh, I, I, I didn't go to college straight out of high school. Yeah, it took about six years, five six years. Um, hopped into the workforce. I had a, I was a cable guy for a long time for like six years. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I worked for Comcast. 
and then it was a, things kind of changed once I, I had my daughters. Once my daughters were born, mm-hmm. um, and I decided to go back to school after that, and which I did really well in. Um, so, but not directly after high school. Yeah, uh, well, time away. When you went back to school, what were you studying? Journalism. I wanted to. I wanted to write about sports, which was always a dream. But I, I went back to school, did really well. Um, which I think is like if, if I when I I'm sure we'll get into the topic later, but you know, in mentoring some of the youth that I mentor, I always tell them, man, like you don't have to go to college right after. Yeah. Figure out like it's okay. It's okay to not like it's okay to not feel like you want to go to college. Figure out some life first. Get some life experience in you. Yeah. You know, maybe you find uh, what you want to do a little later on. But uh, journalism is what. I wanted to study. I got really involved with like a, a literary journalism crowd. Mm-hmm. Was doing a lot of writing. I eventually, my, I, I didn't. I still didn't finish because I found bartending. I was going to say, literary. when when did you make the jump from trying to be a sports journalist to starting to make drinks? How old were you when you figured that out, and what were some of the steps you took there? You know, it wasn't that long ago. It hasn't really been that long, man. I feel like people categorize me um, into like the bartenders that I don't necessarily feel a part of um, because it's really only been like what five years mm-hmm. um, so yeah I was a cable guy for, for about six years got paid really well had a really good job really good schedule really good hours um, and it was kind of slowly making because it started when I was 18 and I was always the youngest um, out of all like the cable guy crews that I was on um and I'd always have this kind of like penchant, I think, uh, as a lead for leadership and um, had some of those qualities early on. So I'm like 24 and they're trying to move me into doing like management stuff and, and, and advancing in that career. And I'd already had, I think my second daughter was born around this time. And I kind of just started questioning. I was 24. I started questioning, like, you know, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Because I'm looking around. A lot of the older cable guys I used to work with, um, older than me, I should, I should say older, but you know, they're older than me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they would always be like, man, go do something else. You know, like you're too young, you're too, you're too smart to just be doing this. And that's nothing against cable guys. Um, like, <laughs> like I love them. I still have a lot of love. Um, I still talk to a lot of them. Well, there's different people. To, different people have different strengths, that, right? Yeah, they would always encourage me to do other things. Yeah. Um, because I was so I was so young, and I was like, no, you know, my dad was such a hard, like, blue collar, hard worker, and like I knew I knew that from a very young age. I could see that, and that that was kind of uh, ingrained in me. So it was kind of like I always imagined that I would just do blue collar work and you know do the nine to five, get paid, you know, when I get paid, and have this kind of nine to five life. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really expect anything else. So when I went back to school. You know, the kind of, uh, the writing had started to take off for me, um, doing more literary journalism stuff, um, writing like prose poetry, uh, I had a mentor who really encouraged me to pursue that. So in order to like pursue education, like higher education full time, you know, I felt like, okay, I can't really work the nine to five cable job. Like, let me try to find a job that. I could work at night so I could go to school and do like journalism stuff during the day. 
offered him access to that, uh, to more of that stuff. Because basically, I was taking like weekend classes and night class. And so, like, she was like, "Hey, man, you should think about like bartending, or like working in a restaurant because you can do that at night and go to school in the morning." Uh, that's just kind of how it happened. I started bartending at a, a franchise restaurant called Famous Dave's in Hayward. Mm-hmm. Never bar back, or I didn't bar back first. I started out bartending. Yeah. I went to bartending school. Terrible. Yep. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did. I was like vodka. I had no idea. I wasn't like really a big drinker at the time. I was like, all right, well, let me go to bartending school. That seems like the logical way. I did that um, and just got a job at a franchise restaurant. I'm mean, gonna fell in love with it. In love with it immediately. At the same time, I got a job at a franchise restaurant. I had uh, one of my really close homegirls is uh, uh, runs a bar. Uh, uh, really really like rough dive bar uh, in downtown Hayward yeah uh, and she needed like she would need like door guy fill-ins every now and then yeah so I would fill in at the door uh, because that is where someone guys work is at the door yeah <laughs> big dudes but, you know uh, <laughs> it's a thing it's yeah a thing. but uh, I started out working the door and um while also bartending at this franchise restaurant, just kind of fell in love with the pace of it all. Mm-hmm. Fell in love with the pace, and I always talk about like service was born into me uh, as a Samoan, as like like I grew up serving people, and it's like it, it it felt very natural for me. Like it, I don't I don't ever feel it's weird because I never really feel like the same struggles of like that. I think a lot of people that I were pretty much raised in the service industry and haven't really worked outside of it like those struggles of like not wanting to serve people some days it hasn't gotten old for me I'm still like very like damn man I just love serving people I want to make people feel good and that was a very natural thing for me I felt like that was something that I was raised with so uh, yeah that's eventually how I started bartending was just kind of trying to go to school and then bartending kind of took over after about a year and I dropped out of school, uh, which I'm fine with. Yeah. Um, I, I still, like, I still have a lot of those contacts. I still keep in touch um, with a lot of people I'm, like, that I was uh, kind of riding alongside with. But, uh, you know, like I tell some of the kids that I mentor, uh, you don't have to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. Because the rest of your life is long. And, you know, the idea that you have to only do one thing for the rest of your life is false. So, and wherever the road takes me, right now it's bartending, and I love it. And it feels like it feels like it's going to be around for a long time, but we'll see. So you've mentioned it a couple times now, and uh, I want to refer back to you on this. So you mentioned the dudes you were playing basketball with who were like 18, 19 years old when you were 12, 13. You had them kind of guiding you along, someone to, you know, like a mentor, as you would say. And then uh, you're talking about in journalism school, too, someone who you were working with and encouraged you to maybe explore bartending. Once you got into bartending, did you have a person or people around you that sort of backed you up and, and sort of showed you the ropes as far as bartending goes or, or how to, you know, handle yourself when you're in bars? As you were saying, you're not, at that point anyway, not so much a big drinker. You weren't really hanging out in bars much. Did you have a group of people or, like, a specific person that sort of helped you along and figuring out that this career could be something you could do for a while? Early on, you know, like I said uh, earlier, I've always sought out knowledge. I always had the desire to learn. You know, anything I've ever really done um, or been interested, I get really nerdy about. You know? mm-hmm. 
way they like, they like see the, the long basketball breakdowns. Um, you know, because like it's not just like surface level love. It's like I, I, I dig deep. But but fairly early on, I didn't really have any like mentors in bartending for the first couple of years because I was working in like franchise restaurants and then like dive bars. Um, and I started to like pick up cocktail books and try to read. But a lot of the stuff was foreign to me. Like I didn't have a lot of those things around for the first. A lot of these ingredients that are so commonplace in cocktail bars, I didn't have those things around. I remember asking uh, one of the older bartenders at a dive bar I used to work at if we like carried Campari and they were like, oh, Campari, like, we do Campari, for there's no flavor in that. Right? I was like, that's weird. It's a weird thing to say. There's so many like classic cocktails with this ingredient at the time. I was like, there's so many classic cocktails with this ingredient in it. I've never tasted it. Um, but I just sought out knowledge through a lot of books. Um, I would say Joy of Mixology uh, was really, you know, one of the first kind of seminal uh, books in my journey. But mm-hmm. once I got involved in like the cocktail scene, you know, I started to find that, that went mentorship. But I always think it's because I sought it out. Like nobody ever, like there were, there was nobody that really presented themselves as like taking me under their wing. Um, but I asked a lot of questions, a lot of questions to a lot of people that I worked with. Um, so eventually like those things have come, I think most specifically, uh, at the double standard in Oakland, uh, Ali Tassini was really one of the first people that, you know, taught, started to teach me a lot and not necessarily about cocktails, but about service. And, um, one of the things he always said that stuck with me was, you know, we don't serve drinks, we serve people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of like the mentors that I've had, like it's never really been centered around cocktail knowledge or cocktail execution or, um, you know, like being the most, uh, technically sound well I mean I pride myself on being technically sound but um, it wasn't always about like cocktail ideation it was very much like service first right so Ali um, names like uh, Carl Barnowski who's been one of the biggest influences in uh, my bartending career um, runs a uh, coin op in San Francisco now hmm. um, Jen- Jennifer Polio really became uh, the I think the largest driving force behind what would become the career for me. Um, I worked for her at the interval at Long Now. Her and uh, Ty Cottle, they both taught me. That's where I eventually learned cocktail families and cocktail history and had this like in-depth spirit uh, knowledge ingrained in me um, and really got to dig deep, deeper into um, a lot of the nerdy shit. It was a really nerdy bar. Can I curse on here, Josh? Yes, I, I feel like it's a bartender podcast. Everyone listening should be 19 or over, 21 or over, or whatever. My purity showing. Um, <laughs> um, it's just it's just respect, yeah. that's all. I appreciate it. Yeah, the, the interval was such a nerdy bar, man. I tell Ty I was having lunch with Ty uh, a couple days ago. I tell him all the time. Like, looking back on it, I felt so weird. Like, I, it... it, it Looking back, it feels so weird that I was in that space because it's such a nerdy bar. And, I mean, I get nerdy about things, but I feel like I don't present that way. I don't know what that really means. Uh, yeah. Uh, where is the uh, interval? Uh, it's in San Francisco. So yeah. It's uh, tucked away in Fort Mason, which is like in the Presidio Marina area of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It's just a really nerdy cocktail bar. So the uh, Long Now uh, Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to long-term thinking. Yeah. Um, and 
space was used as kind of their gathering space or office space for a long time. It's in Fort Mason, which is federal land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they had the thought of like, all right, we need to build more of a community space where people will come um, so that we can start to get the word out about the things that we're doing. So they decided on building a bar and they hired Jen, um, who you know, is very much San Francisco OG came up under Slander Door Group that Vogler and Eric Atkins um, worked at Slander Door for a long time, Hardwater, uh, Heaven's Dog. They hired her to start the cocktail program there. Uh, and it became like this really time-based nerdy bar. Like the, the menu launched. It was like the, there was a five page, five pages and each page was like dedicated to some timepiece. So it was like the history of the martinis and it took you um, through like the development of the martini. Um, and then there was like a, a moment in time with uh, the daiquiri and there was like the full menu of like La Florida daiquiris. Um, and it was like this really like nerdy cocktail history bar. That's super in-depth. What bars are you working at now? Like what are you doing bar-wise currently? Yeah, I run a bar in San Francisco called Novella. Uh, high volume, high volume cocktail bar. Uh, I mean, it's it's been it's it's it's, it's a monster. Six wells. Uh, Whoa! Yeah. Regular, All right. Regular twenty, thirty thousand dollar nights. Um, so it's a beast. It's, it's a beast. But it sounds I, like I, it. I love. I love. What's that? It sounds like it. I like to think of it, too, as, like, if you have those building blocks of that nerdy, you know, the entire history of every style of daiquiri, uh, and you can apply that to doing high volume and cranking out, you know, 75 of those every 10 minutes, you're going to, you're providing someone a better service, even though you're doing it way faster than someone who has to read a chapter of a book to figure it out, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, like, even though it's been, I feel like it's been a... Uh, like pretty steep trajectory and uh, rapid growth in this industry for me. Mm-hmm. So proud of like my history of working in dive bars and then working in high volume and working in these cocktail bars because I feel like a lot of you know bartenders my age didn't necessarily go through that. Yeah, or like at least a lot of people in the cocktail industry and you know, a lot of cocktail bartenders kind of come up through cocktail bars at this point in time, you know, which is, it's beautiful that that's available for people nowadays. Um, but having to work in, having had to work, having worked in dive bars taught me a lot about like conversation. I I used to work like Saturday and Sunday open, which was like 11 AM open. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, maybe like three people in the doors for the first few hours. And it's just like, Hey man, we're neighborhood bar, we're dive bar. Let's have conversations, learn about people. Everybody's a regular, you know? Yeah. So understanding conversation at that level and then working in high volume, which is kind of next after dive bars for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, gave me building blocks of, of speed um, and efficiency 
and really being able to control a room, I think, at a high volume, which is, I think, is like the key, right? It's like, you got to be able to see everything. Yeah. You got to be able to make sure, you know, people aren't getting too drunk or somebody throws up or if somebody, you know, if there's broken glass or, you know, you kind of have to be, when you're, when you're three, four, five deep, you know, you have to, your priority skills have to be on point, um, making sure that things are getting done the right way. Um, and then cocktail bars were kind of like the last step for me and like learning that you're right. I think tied it all together in terms of like steps of service and understanding service at a high level, um, and already having the building blocks of being able to be conversational and, and, and move fast, being back in high volume at this point is like, it feels good. It feels good because like things are just getting done the right way. Yeah. But you're still moving. We're yeah. still moving. People are still making money. We're all, everybody's, everybody's happy. So, you know, that's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. Friday and Saturday nights are fun. I love it. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm <laughs> going to take a, a sharp turn here. So yeah. you, you're, you've learned everything that you can about bartending to this point, obviously always learning. But lately you've been sure. teaching as well, not just uh, these people that you're mentoring, which you've mentioned a couple times, but uh, for the last year or so you've, you've been presenting a specific seminar at a couple different cocktail weeks uh, and conferences yeah. and whatnot. You want to talk about your, your, uh, your seminar? For sure. Yeah, it's, uh, man, it's it's gaining legs right now, man. So much conversation going on. Yeah, uh, certainly. Topic. So I present a seminar called, uh, well, it's been called Tiki Through a Polynesian Land. Um, as I've kind of mentioned, I'm, I'm Samoan. I'm first-generation Samoan American, so you know, my mom is straight off the rock, as they say, um, just straight off the island. Um, and I'm the first generation of you know, Samoan raised in mainland USA of like my generation. So, you know, um, coming into the cocktail industry and for people that aren't familiar with Samoa, Samoa is a, a small island in uh, the Pacific, um, Polynesian island. So, uh, coming into the cocktail world, like I always need tiki bars around, like I said earlier, I wasn't a big drinker. Um, so I didn't really like, wasn't really familiar with things. But coming in and getting more immersed in the cocktail world and seeing how big of a kind of subculture tiki was, you know, there was always something about the that just didn't, like, I always knew there was something that, like, didn't sit right with me. It took me a while to, like, figure out, you know, what about it, like, bothered some part of me. And again, and, and I will say, like, I'm not super sensitive, like, oh, tiki's super offensive to me and death to all tiki bars. Um, it's never what it was. It was just like, man, there's something weird about this. Mm-hmm. And it like bothers some part deep inside of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't figure out what it was. And so over the past couple of years, I've just really spent time um, examining what A, like time period tiki was born out of, um, B, what was going on in the Pacific at that time in terms of like colonialism and imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how that has developed um, as Tiki has grown you know, throughout the first Tiki boom and then kind of like the decline and then now being in this uh, latest Tiki boom over the last couple of years, just watching how like those relationships or that like the relationship between Tiki, Polynesia, the Pacific, tropical drinks, like that whole cross section of um, all these different things that influence Tiki as a subculture, um, how they've all developed. 
Um, and it's been this really interesting journey because I've also had to force myself to learn a lot of ugly, ugly history of the Pacific, of Oceania at large, and Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia. Mm-hmm. It's been at that point sad because you know, there are parts of like our history that I didn't know about, um, just like nuclear testing in the Pacific and. Um, the deaths of like Mao movement and like uh, um, independent independence movement leaders in, in Polynesia. There's a lot of ugly history there that a lot of people I think that enjoy tiki and or that in, that are involved in it and don't understand or don't have access to. It is um, it is super important, like you're saying. Uh, people who are definitely aficionados of tiki, you know, they're provided with the same history books that you were. Uh, as as a youth as well, and we all know that the people who write history aren't necessarily looking out for every perspective, right? For sure. So, I mean, the, the, the seminar that I've presented is, is really just uh, an informational seminar on teaching people about the history of the Pacific in regards to, like, colonialism and imperialism and militarism um, and how I think that people that do enjoy tiki and do operate tiki bars and do work at tiki bars or are involved in tiki as a subculture should look at tiki through that lens um, or at least just take a peek through the lens and, and see if it changes their perspective. Again, like, if people enjoy tiki bars, I'm not here to tell anybody else how to live their life. Yeah. But I think everybody should have the proper information and then make the best decision possible. I always veer on the side of, like, people are, people are good, you know. For the most part, people are good, um, and you know when people gain new information, they look at things differently, and that's the way I like to believe. Um, so I always just present it from that standpoint and let people make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions about what's right and wrong for them in regards to their relationship with people. Um, because it's, uh, you know, uh, I made a really long post the other day about it. Um, because of a lot of the articles, LA Times wrote an article and Eater wrote an article also um, about Tiki and colonialism. And you know, one term that I try not to use when I when I speak is cultural appropriation. But I think a lot of the articles that get written about Tiki right now are currently focusing on cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is just it's such a buzzword. And I think a lot of like aspects of like cultural misappropriation of Tiki are probably right. But I think um, it's such a buzzword that it turns people off. Like some people, once they hear a word like or words like cultural appropriation, don't even want to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're a leftist snowflake. Stop yeah. Your feelings hurt. <laughs> um, and like you know, as wrong as that is, you know, I'd rather have people at the table to have conversation, bring them to the table, and then like let's have a conversation where we can be real and. I'm not going to use these buzzwords so that hopefully you hear me out. Um, after that, you know, we can talk about the the deeper stuff once we gain a, a level of respect uh, for each other in conversation. So, yeah, it's a, it's a topic has been growing. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's cool to see, but we'll see, we'll see uh, how it continues to develop. It's a very important topic. Um, I know... You know, I'm I'm really impressed, and it is funny because there is, you know, predominantly in bartending culture, it is still mostly white dudes, 
And so to have someone from a, a biracial background like yourself actually speak to their truth and how they witness things and, and how you experience things differently, I think is very important, um, especially like in, in any sort of realm and specifically this industry and this topic. Uh, I'm going to lighten things up a little and ask you a, a, a super serious question to you and I. Uh, our listeners might have a different sort of take on it, but um, are, are the Lakers actually going to win the championship this year? Because they look great. Uh, you know, I will. I will refer back to uh, my prediction at the beginning of the year, in which a lot of people kind of laughed because, yeah, sure. I try to be as unbiased as possible when I talk about these things. I try to look at it through a lens of like, okay, how does this actually work out on the court? But yes, the Lakers are going to win the championship. My <laughs> prediction at the beginning of the season was Lakers over Bucks in seven. Um, so I mean, I'm sticking with that. You know, 20, 22 and three right now as, as we're recording this. So um, yeah, got a got a good win last night. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see, man. Um, I like the way it's going right now. It's just a matter of keeping everybody healthy. It's a team filled with guys that are like. A, have championship pedigree, B, that have, like, gone through the media and um, fans bashing them and are, are hungry, I think, yeah. LeBron had this thing last year where it's like, oh, he's done, he's washed up, he's not the best player in the world anymore. Obviously, Dwight Howard and Rajon Rondo and JaVale McGee and all these guys have, like, had to live through you know, the media and fans critiquing them for not being as good as they used to be. And now they're all playing, you know, they're all playing really well and together. It's a, as a huge basketball fan, I look at it sometimes and I'm like, all right, there's some magic with this team just as individuals. I felt that way about the Warriors at a certain point. Um, felt that way about certain Lakers teams. Felt that way about Detroit when they beat uh, one of the saddest sports moments of my life uh, when <laughs> the Pistons beat the Lakers. Um, in the finals of four. Yeah. Um, but like there's some teams that you just like, you can feel it. If you pay attention, you feel it. Feel the energy. You know which way it's going. Yeah. I yeah. think that's the case in all sports, but yeah, the Lakers, the Lakers are definitely going to win. Okay. That's good to know. I'm going to end on that note. If people want to reach out to you, Sam, or find you somehow, how do they do that? You can follow me on Instagram uh, at the bad guy underscore CA. It's probably the best way. I would say, like, follow me on Twitter, too, but that's literally just all sports shit talk. I don't talk about anything else on Twitter, but sports and shit talk and mostly <laughs> basketball. I mean, um, what else is Twitter for? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Twitter's for a lot, there's a lot of, like, positive that Twitter's brought into the world, um, but also a lot of shit talk. Um, also, yeah, like, anybody in the Bay Area, feel free to stop by Novella in there a good portion of time. And there you have it. Thanks again to Samuel Jimenez for taking the time to be one of the first, actually the first person to be interviewed for the Bartender Atlas podcast. And thank you for taking the time to check this out. You might be asking yourself, why didn't they talk about Sam being featured in Imbibe? The truth is, this interview was done a few weeks ago, so while I find my footing as a podcaster, I'll thank you for your patience. The good news is that we have three more of these interviews in the can for this new project, so there are at least three more episodes coming at you. Wherever you found the Bartender Atlas podcast, please subscribe and give us a good rating. If you want to reach out, you can do so at bartenderatlas.com or on social media at bartenderatlas on whatever social media you're using. I'm Josh Lindley, and that's Last Call for Now. 
I promise to come up with a better sign off. <laughs>